Well, this morning, of course, is daylight savings time, and uh, actually, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5, because we're going to look there in just a moment. Pastor Harry, over the last few Sundays, has been talking about what it means to be salt in the midst of a world where there is the purity and potency and really the preserving effect of salt that is so desperately needed. And I thought in sort of a compliment to that, that this morning we would talk about the other category that Christ gives us there in Matthew chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. He says, you are the salt of the earth, and then he also says, you are the light of the world. So this morning we're going to talk about what it means to be light. And as I was thinking about that, Uh, It was just coincidental that it happened to be Daylight Savings Day today. So I thought, how great is that? We're going to talk about light on a day where we are all thinking about sort of the, I guess, the preservation of daylight. That's what Daylight Savings is all about. So I did a little bit of digging into the history of Daylight Savings, and I discovered that I was completely wrong in what I thought Daylight Savings was all about. I used to think that daylight savings was some sort of agrarian holdover, that way back in the day, farmers needed an extra hour, and that's where daylight savings began. Turns out I was totally wrong. Uh, Daylight savings is actually only 55 years old, 55 years old. 1966 is when Congress passed the Uniform Time Act, and daylight savings went into Effect. Now, it does have a little bit of history before that. Some of you are thinking, wait a second, this guy teaches history. He doesn't even know his history. Benjamin Franklin invented daylight savings. Well, that's sort of true. Benjamin Franklin apparently wrote a letter to some sort of magazine, the Journal of Paris, in which he jokingly said that people could save money by saving candle oil if they went to bed earlier and woke up earlier. So he made a joke about going to bed earlier, and now he gets credit for daylight savings time. Uh, It wasn't actually until 1916 that Germany instituted daylight savings time. That was during World War I, and a number of other countries followed suit. I guess in the United States, there was about seven months that we practiced daylight savings time in the year 1918, but then it ended. And it wasn't until World War II that Franklin Roosevelt instituted something called wartime from 1942 to 1945. And again, the whole goal was by going to bed earlier, we don't use as much electricity, and so we can save money on energy costs. But that ended in 1945, and it wasn't until 1966 with the Uniform Time Act that daylight savings was officially and permanently instituted. I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea. I know that's something that people debate. Should we keep daylight savings time? Should we not? But I will tell you this, that the fall back morning is one of my favorite days of the year. So, and I will, I will just make the observation that attendance seems a little higher this morning. And I, I think that's great. I think that's great. So hopefully this morning you need a little less coffee. You got a little bit more sleep. And it's just a joy to see all of you here on this fall back Sunday. All right, so we're going to be talking about light this morning. We're going to be talking about what it means as Christians to be the light of the world. 
Well, it was way before 1966, all the way back in the 4th century, which is the 300s, that there was a young man that I want to tell you about briefly. He grew up in the home where his dad was not a Christian, but his mom was a Christian. And in fact, the father's uh, mother, so his grandmother, also lived with them, and she was not a Christian either. So it was a kind of a, a mixed household. But this young man grew up in a context where he heard the gospel, he heard the truth about Christianity, and yet when he was old enough to leave home, he left everything that his mother had taught him behind. And he abandoned the, the biblical truth that he had been taught, and he went out and embraced a completely worldly lifestyle. It was a lifestyle that was characterized by immorality. He moved in with his girlfriend. In fact, they lived together for 14 years, never got married, had a son together. The son ended up dying as a teenager. And he also pursued empty intellectual pursuits. He got involved in trying to ascertain the meaning of life through all sorts of philosophical systems and pursuits. And one historian writing about this particular individual said that for this young man, Christianity was both too much and not enough. In the moral categories, it was too much because he didn't want to live as Christians live. And in the philosophical category, it was not enough because it wasn't as sophisticated in his mind as some of these other Greek alternatives. In fact, for a short time, this man actually got involved in a completely false religion, a religious cult, all in the pursuit of satisfaction and meaning in life. This young man thought he was done with God, but as the story goes, God was not done with him. God was pursuing him And he was pursuing him in spite of his attempts to run as far away from God as possible. He had decided to be trained in rhetoric. He was essentially a speech teacher in oratory. As you can imagine, in the Greco-Roman world, orators were praised. And this man was a teacher of rhetoric and oratory. And as part of his training, he heard about a famous preacher... And he thought, I want to go listen to that guy preach, not because I'm interested in what he's saying, but I'm interested in how he's saying it. And so this young man went to this church and heard this preacher preach, and he was only there to observe the rhetorical skill of the preacher, and yet the content of the gospel was inescapable. The Lord used that to begin to draw this young man to himself. One of his close friends became a Christian, and God used that as well. And then it was one day in the late 300s, he was walking outside, and he heard some kids playing in the distance, kind of like we heard the kids downstairs this morning. And he heard a child's voice say, pick it up and read it. Completely out of context, but he heard that, and he suddenly was cut to the quick of his conscience, and he went and found a Bible, and he picked it up, and he opened it to Romans chapter 13, and I want to read the passage that this young man read. You don't have to turn there. I asked you to turn to Matthew 5, which is where we'll be in just a moment, but in Romans chapter 13, 
His eyes fell on verse 11. And there Paul writes, Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And in that moment, when he saw those words from the end of Romans chapter 13, Augustine, or Augustine as he's sometimes called, was converted. The Lord Jesus used that passage to bring this wayward soul back to saving faith. And of course, Augustine becomes one of the most, if not the most, prominent theologians in the history of the Western church in pre-Reformation church history. In fact, the Reformers in many ways recovered some of the truths that Augustine himself had taught and preached It was Augustine's mom who had faithfully prayed for her son to become a Christian, and her prayers were answered. In fact, she stands out in church history as the faithfulness of a believing wife who, through her testimony and prayers, her mother-in-law, her husband, and her son eventually all came to saving faith. Her name was Monica, which... By the way, this is just kind of a fun fact. Santa Monica is named after her. So next time you're sitting on the Santa Monica freeway going, why am I not moving? Just remember, oh yeah, isn't that the lady that prayed for her son and he got saved? And he was important. He was important. That's true. Augustine came to saving faith from this passage, a passage where the Apostle Paul reflects the truth that we as Christians are to live in the light. Awake from your slumber. It's time to stop being apathetic and lethargic, and it's time to wake up, and it's time to put off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from there, I want to go to Matthew chapter 5, because where does the Lord himself tell his disciples, his followers, to walk in the light? It's in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is where it connects directly with what Pastor Harry has been telling us about with regard to salt, right? Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, right after the Beatitudes, those attitudes that characterize true believers, Jesus says... You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And of course, Pastor Harry has given us brilliant exposition of those verses. But notice what Jesus does starting in verse 14. He continues by saying, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
I love that passage, and it's a compliment to what we've been learning about the fact that we are to be salt. We are also to be light. Salt preserves and light proclaims. And so I want to dig into that concept a little bit this morning. We know, of course, from John chapter 8 that Jesus said that he is the light of the world. And at the end of John chapter 12, he tells his disciples that through faith in him, believers become sons and daughters of the light. So he is the light, and he is the one who enables us to become children of the light. Now, with that as a little bit of a background, that the passage that I really want us to dig into this morning is actually a parallel to Romans chapter 13. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. So I'm going to make you turn one more time to Ephesians chapter 5 as we explore the implications of what it means to be light. What does it mean that we are the light of the world? What does it mean that we are to be children of the light? What does it mean that we are to walk in the light? Or as Romans 13 reminded us, that we are to awake and live as in the day and no longer in the night. The passage that we're going to focus on this morning is Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 6, all the way down through verse 14. And let me read that. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, as you try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible When they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I love the fact that I chose a theme where the two passages that we're looking at have the word awake in them on Fall Back Sunday. Like, this is great. If this was spring forward, everyone would be totally convicted and most of us wouldn't even be here. But this is, this is Fall Back Sunday, so I, I think it's appropriate for us to talk about being awake this morning. As we look at this passage, verses 6 through 14, what we're going to discover are three properties of light that relate to us as those who are spiritual lights in this world. And it's really amazing how the Word of God uses comparisons between things that God has created in the physical realm to illustrate spiritual realities. One of the things I love about biblical analogies is that they just don't break down. When I come up with an analogy that maybe I'm you know, explaining something to my kids, the analogy usually breaks down really, really fast. I'm good at coming up with bad analogies. But in Scripture, the analogies just don't break down. And that's because the God who 
inspired those analogies, actually created the physical reality, knowing he was going to use the physical reality as a spiritual analogy. And we see that even this morning in this passage with regard to light. Three properties of light in these verses that I hope, in my own heart, this has been convicting to think about, and I hope for you it compels you as salt to also be light in your home, at work, with your family, at school if you're a student, in your neighborhood, as those who live in a very dark and decaying culture. You know, it's easy for us when we log on to whatever our favorite news website might be and scroll through the headlines, it's easy for us to get discouraged because the headlines are so overtly bad, right? It's like watching Romans 1 spell out the downward spiral of society, and you're just like, bad, 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 bad. It's just discouraging. You almost have to have your quiet time both before and after you check the news. But it should instill in us the reality that we are here to be light in the darkness. We're not just here to decry the darkness. We're here to actually illuminate the darkness. And the light always shines brightest when the sky is the darkest. And that's a great reminder for us as believers. So let's look at these three properties. The first, the first here in starting in verse 6 and going through verse 7 is just the principle that light radiates. Light radiates. And what I mean by that is that light stands out in contrast to the dead of night. Light stands out in contrast to the dead of night. It radiates. If you're in a dark room and someone turns on a flashlight, it's immediately noticeable. If you're driving on a dark highway and you see a light in the distance, it stands out. It radiates in contrast to the darkness. Look again at verse 6 and 7. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And here Paul's setting up a contrast. He's saying, in contrast to those who walk in darkness, your life is to radiate, it's to stand out as something very distinct and different. For the sake of context, look back at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This is the broader context. There Paul says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. And then he goes on to talk about putting off the deeds of darkness and renewing your mind with the truth of God's word and putting on 
the work and life of Christ, behavior that honors him. Now you'll notice in verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 19 of chapter 4, that you have the idea of sensuality and the idea of impurity and the idea of greediness. And Paul's going to pick up on those same themes in chapter 5, verse 3. So we go from the broader context to more of the near context. And look at chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, where Paul really sets up, again, the contrast, the distinction between the darkness and the light. Chapter 5, verse 3, but immorality, that would be a synonym of sensuality, or any impurity, just a general word for wickedness, or greed, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. For there must be no filthiness and silly talk. That would be a reference to jokes that are impure, uh, making reference to either sexual or sensual themes in a flippant way. Or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, there's those three kind of key themes again, immoral, impure, covetous, referring to greediness, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So in the context then, the Apostle Paul is making it very clear that light and darkness do not mix. They are incompatible. There is a contrast here such that those who are of the light stand out because the light radiates into the darkness and is distinct from and distinguished from the darkness. Then in verses 6 and 7, this is who you used to be, but this is not who you are any longer. Our world is characterized by those themes, isn't it? It's characterized by immorality and sensuality. It's characterized by impurity. It's characterized by greediness and covetousness. And what's interesting is that the Apostle Paul identifies the root sin of all of those expressions of sin as idolatry. And it is idolatry, right? Because what is sexual immorality but something that stems out of a lust, which is a strong desire for something that God has not given to you? What is impurity but something that stems out of lust for something that God has not seen fit to give you? What is greediness and covetousness but the same thing? It's making an idol of something that is not to be worshiped and then pursuing it in a way that is outside of the boundaries of what God has allowed. I find it really interesting that right there in verse 4, that the antidote for all of this is giving thanks. Right? We don't always think of thanksgiving as being the antidote for, example, sexual immorality or uh, even coarse jesting. We perhaps would say, yeah, I can see how thankfulness is the antidote for something like covetousness or greediness, but sexual immorality, how is thankfulness the antidote to that? Well, because again, all of it is rooted in lust, and lust 
sinful lust, a strong desire to have something that God has not seen fit to give you, is the opposite of a thankful heart that rests with gratitude and contentedness in what God has seen fit to give you and worships Him rather than longing after some sort of false idol in your heart. So that kind of immorality, impurity, and greediness, it characterizes the darkness. It characterized you before you were a Christian. When you used to worship yourself and your own sinful desires and the expressions of those sinful desires. But now, as Paul said to the Thessalonians of 1 Thessalonians 1, you have turned from you have turned from serving idols to turn and worship the living and true God, right? If I were Pastor Harry, I would say amen. amen. Hey, it works. I like that. I might use that more often. He's on to something. But what used to characterize the darkness, or what does characterize the darkness, and what used to characterize the darkness of our own hearts pre-Christ, now as children of light, we don't, we don't live that way anymore. Because light is incompatible with darkness. Light stands out from darkness. Light radiates in the darkness. And again, the distinction in your own conduct and in your own attitudes should be so obvious that like a light being turned on in a dark room, it's immediately evident that you're different. Because light stands out against the backdrop of the darkness. I was thinking about how light is incompatible with darkness, and uh, I was remembering back when I was in high school, I took photography as one of my electives at Saugus High School up in Santa Clarita. Go Centurions. Except now all my kids are at Hart High School, so go Indians. But they're changing the name, so I don't know. But in any case, we were in photography class. This was in uh, the mid-90s, back before the digital revolution in photography. And uh, we would run around with these little cameras that had the film in them and the whole deal. And then we would have to go into the dark room to develop the film. And if you accidentally opened the door the wrong way, or if you accidentally turned on a light in the dark room, your negatives were totally ruined, right? Because light is incompatible with darkness. Now, in that case, we wanted to keep the light out. Biblically, though, we want to let the light in. And we are the light, and the light is incompatible with the darkness, In this case, of course, the Apostle Paul uses the idea of darkness as a way to describe those who are darkened in their understanding, darkened in their uh, ability to live out what God wants them to be and to do. They are slaves to sin. They're blind to the truth of the gospel. They're dead in their sins, as he says earlier in the book of Ephesians. And we were once them, but we have been transformed. That brings us then to a second property of light that I think is so compelling from this passage. 
Not only does light radiate, meaning that it stands out in contrast to the dead of night. And by the way, I use that phrase, the dead of night, because obviously we think of the dead of night as the darkest part of the night. But in this context, the dead of night actually do refer to the spiritually dead who are in, the, in a spiritual, perpetual night, and they need the light of the gospel. And our behavior and our conduct stands in stark contrast to them. But secondly, not only does light radiate, light also reflects. Light, light reflects. And what I mean by that, light reflects, what I mean by that is that it showcases the character of its divine source. It showcases the character of its divine source. And, and we see this starting in verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. In these two verses, Paul describes who we were. You were formerly in the darkness. Who we are, you are now light in the Lord. How we should live. The fruit of light consists in uh, goodness and righteousness and truth. And even our new identity, right? We are now children of the light. So who we were, darkness, who we are in Christ. We're to walk as children of light and our character is to be characterized by no longer immorality, but goodness. No longer impurity, no longer impurity, but righteousness. No longer greed, which really is the lie that I can have satisfaction through something that I'm not supposed to have. But we're now characterized by truth. So it's interesting how Paul uses sort of three main characteristics of the darkness. Now he shows us three characteristics of the light. But the point, really big picture that I'm making here is that as light in this world, we reflect the light of the source of that light who is the Lord himself. You are light in the Lord. You were darkness. You were characterized by immorality and sensuality and impurity and greed and covetousness, but no more. No more, because you who were formerly darkness, what you were, you no longer are. You are now light in the Lord. And when did that happen? That happened at the moment of conversion, like with Augustine, who read that passage from Romans 13, the parallel passage to this passage, and the Lord used that to shine the light of the gospel into the darkness of his heart, and blind eyes were opened, and his dead heart came to life. And that happened for you and for me at the moment when not because of us, but in spite of us, God drew us to himself and through the truth of the gospel, illuminated our minds and gave us the gift of faith. And in that moment, he justified us, which means that he declared us to be righteous in the courtroom of heaven. That's our position. And at the same time, he regenerated us, which means that his Holy Spirit cleanses us 
so that we are now new creations in Christ. That's our practical reality. Our position is justification. Our practice is regeneration, which lives itself out in what we call progressive sanctification, which means that positionally we are righteous because he's declared us to be righteous, and practically we are increasing in righteousness as we are conformed daily to the image of our Savior. And one day in the future, we will be glorified, and in that moment, our position and our practice will be together. And all of this is possible because the Lord chose us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. You are light in the Lord. That's who you are. That's positional. And now he will talk about the practical. Because of who you are, this is how you ought to walk. Walk as children of light. And when you do that, you reflect the character of your Savior. One of the amazing properties of physical light is its reflective ability, right? You get a bunch of mirrors. You can actually amplify light using mirrors, which is amazing. I think it's so fascinating, again, that God uses physical realities in the created world as analogies for spiritual truths, and those analogies don't break down because the God who created the physical reality knew he was going to use it as an analogy, and so he just made it so it works perfect. And when we think about physical light, physical light also reflects the character of its source, right? Genesis chapter 1, God says, let there be Light. And then throughout all of Scripture, light is used as a symbol of God's presence. God's glory is represented as brilliant, unapproachable, blinding light. God's absence is represented as darkness. Right? Eternal hell is place of darkness. Eternal heaven is a place of light. In fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 22, which is the last chapter in your Bible, so Genesis 1, let there be light. Revelation 22, the last chapter in your Bible, it talks about the fact that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no need for a lamp because God is the light. So as those who are saved by him, we're to be reflectors. We don't generate the light. We reflect the light. We're kind of like the moon, I guess, in the solar system. Uh, Beth and I were talking uh, about our, our daughter. <laughs> our daughter right now is doing uh, classical conversation. She's in the equivalent of eight. Uh, equivalent of eighth grade. It's actually kind of funny this year. I've got two kids at master's university, so they're doing Christian school. I have one son at Hart High School, so he's doing public school. And then I have one daughter who's doing homeschool. So we're doing all three just so that everyone could be mad at us. So it's, it's working out great. It's working out great. Um, but uh, as part of her classical conversations class, she is taking... 
astronomy, and she has to do like the history of astronomy, and she actually had to create a version of the solar system that was not heliocentric. She did create one of those later when we got to Kepler and Copernicus, but prior to that, she was doing a version of the solar system that was geocentric, had the earth in the middle. And uh, so it was kind of funny. I came home one day and I was like, I don't think that's what the solar system is supposed to look like. It's like, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's all part of the curriculum. Um, but when I, think, when I think about the solar system, right, you think about those planets, the moon and the rest of the actual planets, how do we even know that they're there? Because they reflect the light of the sun, right? We know the moon's there because it reflects. We know all the other planets are there because they reflect. And even when astronauts go up into space and they take a picture of Earth and you see that beautiful blue opal uh, surrounded by a sea of darkness, it's only illuminated because it reflects. And we as believers are like planets that reflect the light of the sun. S-O-N. And that's when we do that, what we show to the world as we radiate the beauty of God's holiness is we showcase for the world, as Paul even identifies here, God's goodness, God's righteousness, and God's truth. And so as witnesses in this dark world, what is it that we are to do? We are to radiate a life that is so different from the lives of the people around us that they can't help but notice. And as they notice, what we are radiating is a reflection of the very character of the one who saved us. So that it all points to him and we're just little reflectors of his glory And they see in us goodness, but it's a reflection of God's goodness. And they see in us righteousness, but it's a reflection of God's righteousness. And they see in us truth, and it's simply a reflection of God's truth. And, you know, really the question that I'm asking myself and that I would encourage you to ask yourselves as you're thinking through this passage this morning is, do the people who know me in my family, at my house, in my neighborhood, at my job, in my extended family? Do they look at my life and they say, wow, there's something so different? And when they notice the difference, is it because what they see in me is not me, but it's him? Walk as children of light because you are light in the Lord. So light radiates and light reflects. And then thirdly, as we look at the rest of this passage, light reveals, light reveals. Light reveals, and what I mean by that is it shines with clarity into the darkest heart. It shines with clarity into the darkest heart. It not only stands out in the darkness, it not only showcases the character of its source, but it it shines out with clarity into the darkest regions 
Paul even says the, the secret things. Well, what does light reveal? I think in this passage, we see that light reveals two realities. First, it reveals the truth about sin. Look at verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. So light reveals the truth about sin. And Paul here is not saying that as Christians, we're supposed to go around telling everybody all the dirty secrets of everybody else in the world. In fact, Paul says the very opposite. Don't do that. But what does he mean then when he says that the light exposes the darkness? Simply the reality that when you go into, to use again the analogy, when you go into a dark room and you turn on the light, suddenly everything becomes visible. And as Christians who are being salty, to go back to what Pastor Harry has been teaching us, the purifying and protecting and preserving influence of that on society has an effect. It has a positive effect. And as those who are light in the midst of a dark world, simply living as light is going to have that kind of positive effect, and it's going to cause those who are engaged in disgraceful acts of rebellion against God to retreat, because light repels the darkness. Uh, I remember, um, I used to do this more in the past, I don't do it so much anymore, but probably around this time of year and then again in the spring, I, I would sort of act as my own exterminator around the house, which I'm not really qualified to do, but I had a flashlight and a can of Raid, so here we go. Um, and I would wait until dark, and then I would go out into the backyard and... I had kind of seen where some of the spider webs were during the daytime, but there were no spiders in them. But at night, in the darkness, things come out in the darkness that aren't there in the daylight, right? In fact, just the other day, we moved a trash can, and there were a whole bunch of critters that scattered once they were exposed to the daylight, crickets and things. Probably need to get my flashlight and my can of Raid. <laughs> but I would go, and I would... Use that light, and suddenly there's a big old spider sitting in its web. Light exposes the darkness. And it has that, again, purifying and protecting influence on society. And I even think when we look at the book of Second Thessalonians that talks about the end of the age, when it talks about the restrainer being removed from society, that it's actually talking about the influence of the church. Part of the reason I would argue that our society has spiraled so quickly in the last 18 months is because churches have been closed. And when you remove that influence, the darkness is not exposed because the light gets turned off. So the light reveals, and in this passage, it reveals the truth about sin. It confronts that truth. Better said, it confronts that sin, and it confronts it with the truth of the gospel, which is my second point, is that the light not only reveals the truth about sin, its ugliness, 
it also reveals the truth of the gospel. Look at the end of verse 13 into verse 14. For everything that becomes visible is light. Probably better translated that everything becomes visible in the light. And then for this reason it says, and here Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah chapter 60, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What is that? That's nothing short of a gospel invitation in this explanation of the darkness of the world and the call to be light as children of the light. And so as those who are the light, our influence is such that it not only exposes the sinfulness of sin because the contrast again becomes so obvious as we radiate and influence and illuminate the world around us, but it also is used by God to draw people to himself, to rescue them out of the darkness and to invite them into the kingdom of light. And here God himself says through the prophet Isaiah to those who are asleep in the darkness, wake up and let the light of the Savior shine on you. As those who are reflectors of his glory, we get to be witnesses Instruments in his hand whom he uses to rescue people like we used to be and transfer them from deadness and blindness and darkness into life and sight and the kingdom of his dear son. This is nothing short of a gospel call. And so the light not only reveals the sinfulness of sin, it also reveals the wonder of the gospel. Which, of course, is a passion of our hearts because we're Great Commission Christians. And we want to see as many brought into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as possible as those who will join us around the throne and worship him forever and ever because of what he accomplished for us on the cross. And so we have a mission, and our mission is to go out into a world of darkness where people are asleep in the darkness, dead in the darkness, and for us to radiate through our conduct a contrast that is so clear for everyone to see, and for us to reflect In that, the greatness and goodness and righteousness and truth of our Savior and for us to then reveal both the sinfulness of sin, yes, but also the wonder of the gospel. And as we do that, God, in his great mercy, uses us as instruments to bring others to a saving knowledge of the Son, to wake them up and to let the Savior himself shine the light of his truth into their hearts. Well, we started in Matthew chapter 5, and I just want to read Matthew five fourteen to 16 one more time in light of what we just heard. 
Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You're to radiate, you're to reflect, you're to reveal. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. If you put your light under a basket, it doesn't radiate anymore because no one can see it. It doesn't reflect anything because it's not even connected to its source. It certainly doesn't reveal the truth about sin or the truth about the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ because it's hidden. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are to be salt and we are to be light. And when we radiate and reflect and reveal, we have the wonderful joy of being used by God as an instrument in the hearts and minds of others as he draws them to himself so that they join us, as Jesus says here, in glorifying our great God and Savior. And we look forward to the day when we'll all be joined together standing around the throne and singing his praises. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word from Ephesians chapter 5. It's convicting to think about the reality that we are to be light in this dark world. The world is indeed dark. Lord, help us by your grace and for your glory to radiate as a witness to Christ, to reflect his goodness and righteousness and truth, and to reveal the truth about sin, and also the truth about salvation. We ourselves were once those who walked in darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. May we walk as children of the light. We pray this in his name. Amen.